My name is Lily Madden, and I'm a proud Aranda, Bunjalung, Kalkadun woman from Gadigal country. The Daily Oz acknowledges that this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people and pays respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We pay our respects to the first peoples of these countries, both past and present. Good morning and welcome to The Daily Oz. It's Thursday the 1st of February. I'm Sam. I'm Lucy. According to the National Museum of Australia, today marks 63 years since the oral contraceptive pill became available in Australia, giving Australian women certainty and control over their fertility for the first time. In today's deep dive, TDA's fact checker Lucy will take us back in time to hear about the development of the pill, how far we've come and how far we've got to go. But first, Lucy, what's making headlines this morning? Australia has ranked 14th in a global anti-corruption index. The Corruption Perceptions Index from Watchdog Transparency International ranks countries based on public perceptions of government corruption. Denmark topped the list as the least corrupt country, while Somalia was rated lowest at 180. Transparency International credited Australia's new National Anti-Corruption Commission, but called out whistleblower protections and political donations, which it said, quote, require comprehensive reform to ensure they're effective. Prices, or inflation, rose by 4.1% over the year to December 2023. That's according to the latest data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The Consumer Price Index rose 0.6% over October to December, which is the smallest quarterly growth since March of 2021. However, this doesn't mean prices are falling. It means prices are increasing at a slower rate than they were previously. Housing and rental costs were still significant contributors to the rising prices over the quarter. Universal Music Group has published an open letter accusing TikTok of bullying. Universal claims TikTok has tried to intimidate them by removing songs by, quote, certain developing artists from the platform ahead of an expiring contract between the music publisher and the social media giant. Universal represents thousands of your faves, including Taylor Swift, Billie Eilish and Steve Lacey. TikTok responded by accusing Universal of, quote, putting their own greed above the interests of their artists and songwriters. And today's good news, for the first time, a live newborn great white shark has been sighted by a filmmaker and a PhD student who were looking for sharks in California. Grey whites are grey on top and white underneath. However, this shark was roughly 1.5 metres and completely white. Scientists or explorers have never spotted a baby great white shark. This was the first time. And student Philip Stearns said they were reviewing the footage when they realised they had indeed filmed a newborn shark. Oral contraceptives, a.k.a. the pill, have been around for so long that they've become a huge part of everyday life for a huge chunk of Australians. They're broadly accessible through a prescription from a GP. In some cases, resupplies of the pill are even available without the need for a GP visit, like in several New South Wales pharmacies. But that wasn't actually the case for most of human history, right? That's right. For as long as people have had sex, they've been experimenting with contraceptives, Lots of historical contraceptives are just unspeakable. People have been putting things inside or on themselves in order to prote- uh, in order to prevent pregnancy for a long, long time. And truly, I feel blessed to live in the 21st mm. century and not in ancient Egypt. 
I'm a woman in my 20s with no children and that's my choice and it's within my control when or if I choose to have them. The same would not be true if I was born in the 1930s rather than the 1990s. So when did the pill come onto the scene? Like what was the kind of context that led up to the development of the product? We have to go back to the story of Margaret Sanger. She was an American woman who was born in the 1870s. She founded the movement for birth control. In fact, she actually coined the term birth control. She was the sixth kid of 11 and her mother died aged 50. And Margaret Sanger believed the reason her mother died was that her body had been just broken down by many, many pregnancies. She then worked as a public health nurse in New York City. So in the early 20th century in New York City, she saw firsthand the impact of unwanted pregnancies, particularly on low socioeconomic status families and migrant women. And she helped care for women who went to desperate, often life-threatening lengths to terminate their pregnancies. She was radicalised very early on Mm. to believe that there needed to be a way for women to be able to control their fertility. What a radical idea. I know, but it genuinely was radical. It wasn't until she was in her 70s, actually, that everything fell into place for her to realise her biggest dream, which we have records of her writing about for a long time, what she called a magic pill to prevent pregnancies. So Margaret Sanger was a nurse, but not necessarily a scientist. How did she actually start the process of developing the magic pill? So in the early 1950s, she actually tracked down a scientist named Gregory Pincus, Gregory Pincus was at this time holding an annual conference where scientists could present their discoveries about human hormones. And she was also, very luckily, in contact with Kathleen McCormick, who was a wealthy widow who wanted to spend her deceased husband's money on research into contraceptives. It was really, it was kismet. All these things came together Mm. at the same time. So with Kathleen McCormick's funding, Gregory Pincus worked with another doctor, Dr. John Rock, to develop the first birth control pill. And what did that pill look like? Is it the same as what we've got in pharmacies today? It actually was a lot stronger than the pill that you can get today. Unnecessarily stronger. The pill that you can get at the GP today is less powerful in that sense. So, as I said, it was tested in the 1950s and it was tested on women in Puerto Rico, which is a US territory. Many women in Puerto Rico were not told what they were taking. Uh, They weren't necessarily told that it was an experimental drug or what effects it would have. And a significant proportion of those women had fairly serious side effects and three died. But there was actually no investigation into whether the pill caused their deaths. Right. And when we've had this discussion with TDA's audience, both on the podcast, but also on Instagram, sometimes in the context of whether a male contraceptive pill should be developed, we've had feedback that, you know, people experience side effects like migraines, hormonal imbalances, or mental ill health that they eventually have traced back to the pill. So it doesn't sound like much has changed in terms of side effects, although a world without the pill altogether feels like a long, long time ago. How did the pill then come to market and become a staple? I think in terms of those side effects, in the absence of any other option, people kind of decided that was a price that they were willing to pay or that people would be willing to pay. So the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, approved the contraceptive pill in 1960 and it came to Australia the following year under the name Anovlar. 
One thing actually that I found in researching this in the FDA's history of approving the pill is that they actually noted that the pill was approved a couple of years before we understood the dangers of thalidomide, which was a morning sickness pill uh, that ended up causing fairly serious physical disability and death in babies born to women who took it. The dangers of thalidomide were discovered a couple of years later, and this history that I read suggested that if the pill had come up for approval after 1962 rather than before, it actually might have been subject to more regulations or a stricter approvals process. Maybe the formula could have been changed. I mean, it's hard to speculate on, you know, a year or two's difference in terms of regulations. But this history cited the thalidomide case as a very important turning point in the kind of regulations that they would do around these kind of drugs. And the pill just kind of slipped under the wire right before that. And that was the subject of the apology to survivors that the government issued a couple of months ago. We did a podcast episode on that. I'll put that in today's show notes. So that takes us until the kind of mainstream development of the pill and how it came to market in the US. What was it like to try and get the pill in those early days in Australia? When the pill came to Australia in 1961, it had a 27.5% luxury tax tacked onto it, which is very steep. It was officially only available to married women, although I read two first-hand accounts from women who were not married in the 1960s about how women would pass around the names of doctors who would prescribe it to single ladies. In 1972, Following pressure from the newly formed women's electoral lobby, the new PM Gough Whitlam actually scrapped the tax and put the pill on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, which is how the government subsidises the price of some medicines. One article I read in the lead up to this described the pill's arrival in Australia as dropping like a bomb into women's lives. And you can imagine going from basically no control to some control over your fertility. Well, talk to me about those changes. So what changed more broadly in in kind of a social sense once that happened? In the years uh, immediately following the pill becoming available, women were more and more able to participate in the workforce. There were other social changes happening that pushed this forward, but, you know, we can't discount the impact of being able to control when you got pregnant and how many children you had. So per the Australian Bureau of Statistics, women made up less than a third of the workforce in 1966. And as of last month, women make up close to half of the workforce. So why don't we finish this episode in a place that we've often come to in these discussions before? We've talked about the side effects of oral contraceptives for women. Where are we at with male contraceptives? Is there any medical equivalent to the pill for men? Has there been any recent developments in this space? There are a few different studies in progress. There's a gel that's being developed to put on your body to lower your sperm count temporarily. There's a pill being developed that would temporarily prevent the body from making more sperm and even a pill being developed that could make sperm swim more slowly. So that's one that TDA has actually looked into. We made a video about it and we'll pop that in the show notes. But as a general rule, it really does seem like the pill for men is a long, long way away. 63 years to the day since the oral contraceptive pill became available in Australia. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. Thanks, Sam. That's all I've got time for on today's episode of The Daily Oz. Welcome to February. We're in the second month of the year. Thanks for sticking with us. We'll be back again in your ears tomorrow morning. Until then, have a wonderful Thursday. 
Ready? And this is the Daily Oz. This is the Daily Oz. This is the Daily Oz. Oh, now it makes sense. 